Welcome once again to another episode of Demand Gen Radio, the one program that brings you all the latest methods and technologies for driving growth and increasing demand. With the voice of Demand Gen, David Lewis. All right, welcome everyone to another episode of Demand Gen Radio. I am super, super, super excited to have on the program Roger Dooley. You guys are in for a great treat. I've really just gotten to know Roger in the last 24 hours in terms of he and I talking, but Roger is no stranger to my brain. Uh, and I'll tell you how we we came to uh, get to know, let's say, one another in just a little bit. But first, Roger, thanks so much for, for joining me. Where are you sheltering in place these days? Well, thanks for having me on, David. Uh, I am in Austin, Texas uh, today and have been for many days uh, in a row, um, mostly uh, sheltered in place, uh, only um, venturing out uh, once in a great while to do a curbside pickup or something. All right. Well, I hope you are staying safe and staying healthy. And thanks again for for joining me. For those of you who don't know Roger, let me just tell you a little bit about him and why you're in for such a treat. Um, Roger is an extremely well-published author uh, of two books. One uh, we're going to talk and dive into today called Friction, his newest book, which last year was uh, named one of the best business books in 2019 by Strategy and Business. Uh, the book that I came to know you buy is Brainfluence, as we talked about. And for those of you that have never read Brainfluence, if you are in sales and you are in marketing, and I know most of you are, you should absolutely grab a copy of Brainfluence. And let me tell you about that in a moment. Also, Roger is a fellow podcaster. So if you like the content and love what Roger is sharing today, and I know you will, uh, you might want to tune into his podcast as well. And when we all come out of this, uh, you know, sheltering in place, if you are looking for a great speaker for your upcoming conferences and events, uh, I think Roger will be one of those that you want to keep on your on your short list. More on that in a little bit. Uh, so, Roger, here's the story. I, I, I promised I'd save it for the podcast today, but uh, for all of you. One day, uh, we had a consultant come over to DemandGen, and she was teaching a workshop on SEO. And it's something that we certainly help our clients with quite a bit. But she was helping our own marketing team do some analysis of our own SEO. And one of the homework assignments that she gave us, and this is something like 12 years ago, when the company was really still very early, she said, go look up yourself, see what your own SEO is. So I go to the web, and I go to Google, and I turn on the incognito mode so there's no preference or bias to the data, and I search David Lewis. And I'm not coming up. And that's not a surprise, very, very common name. And that's when the agency was just getting going. And then I typed David Lewis Marketing. And then very interesting person came up, Dr. David Lewis. And I'm no doctor. Uh, and I'm like, who's Dr. David Lewis? And he's considered the father of neuromarketing. So I start reading about this David Lewis and his research in neuroscience. And that led me to several different books on the topic of neuromarketing and a total passion for the topic. And one of those books that I grabbed and changed just the way I approach marketing and communication, Roger, was your book on Brainfluence. Literally just read it cover to cover in one sitting. It is, it is dog-eared, and, and I saw it on my uh, desk this morning as I pulled it down from the shelf. I'm like, I know I have that somewhere, and there it was right on my shelf at home. And so I want to thank you for writing that book. It has not only inspired me to be a better marketer and a better communicator, but a lot of the lessons that you taught me I've certainly brought to our clients uh, and taught lessons like that to my kids. So thank you for, for writing that. Before we jump into friction, can you tell me how that all got started? Like what, what got you involved in neuroscience and teaching uh, neuromarketing and writing the book? Well, it, that goes really back a long way. And thank you for the kind comments, because I think that there is no greater reward for an author or speaker or teacher than to find somebody who has found value in their ideas and has used them uh, with some success. So that, that's I really appreciate over that. Over and over and over again. I mean, it's such a phenomenal book. But uh, it really goes back to my earliest days. I, when I was in college, I was an engineering major of all things, and uh, I was a psychology minor, which is sort of an odd minor. I think I was the only one that I knew of engineer, mining, or in psychology. Uh, and at the same time, I had an interest in advertising. Uh, can't explain that one, but when I was in the <laughs> library, uh, supposedly studying organic chemistry or differential equations, instead I'd be reading Ad Age. 
And uh, I started off, I guess, in a pretty normal engineering career after that, put those interests aside. But uh, over time, uh, they sort of uh, came back into my life. Marketing first, I eventually bailed out of a uh, fairly high-level corporate strategy uh, strategy job at a Fortune 1000 company to uh, start a direct marketing business, which was a pretty scientific kind of marketing. A week, uh, this was in the early 80s, uh, in the early days of home computers, but we could do things like A-B tests, so with different covers, different messaging. And we could do square inch analysis. So as marketing went in those days, that was about the most quantitative kind that you could do. I mean, uh, certainly much more so than TV ads or radio ads or newspaper ads where you really had no idea what was working and what wasn't. So uh, and that eventually um, morphed into an interest about uh, probably 15 years ago. I saw uh, neuroscience and marketing coming together. They, mm-hmm. uh, I wasn't the only person to see that. There were already a few early neuromarketing providers Uh, But I said, okay, hmm, that's interesting. So being a web marketer by that time, uh, I grabbed a domain, neurosciencemarketing.com. I started writing there and I've been writing there ever since. Uh, Well over a thousand posts there, a few hundred at Forbes and uh, various other places around the internet. And uh, I just found the intersection of how the brain works and marketing uh, to be really fascinating. And my interest have evolved. Initially, I started off focused on kind of the hard neuroscience, the uh, uh, brainwave measurement, brain activity measurement stuff, but that wasn't really applicable to most businesses uh, from a budget standpoint. So uh, I focused more on applying psychology and behavioral science and translating the work of really smart uh, scientists into stuff that business people could understand and use. And that's pretty much what I've been doing ever since. I branched out a little bit into uh, podcasting, as you mentioned. I've uh, had your namesake, <laughs> Dr. David Lewis, <laughs> uh, right. on the podcast. You had the uh, Dr. David Lewis. Uh, he's a very, very, very nice uh, person. And I uh, actually invented the field of neuromarketing kind of by accident. As I recall, he was doing some um, brainwave measurement experiments and needed something for people to look at and decided to use a few commercials. And so he ended up being the first person who put people in uh, uh, brain machines, basically, to uh, look at commercials and see what their brains were doing. And uh, uh, he he ended up uh, being the first person to do that. So it was was sort of an accidental invention. At least that's that's the story that uh, I recall him telling me. Uh, But uh, you know, I've been focused on uh, doing that in my, uh, the first book, Brainfluence, was meant to be just a hundred short, easy recipes for different uses. Uh, again, very easy uh, uh, to understand for and apply. Uh, I created a little framework called the Persuasion Slide uh, uh, to sort of help people think about, okay, I want to work on this marketing campaign, work on this ad. Uh, you know, how can I incorporate both you know, the stuff I need to in the ad, the sort of logical product information that people need to have, uh, and these psychological triggers. Uh, And one element in that framework was friction, and that's uh, difficulty. And basically, as most marketers know these days, friction is usually a bad thing. If you have friction in your checkout process, if you have more steps than needed, more form fields than you are absolutely necessary, you will lose business to your competitors like Amazon, where all somebody has to do is press one little button to complete the purchase. So, uh, you know, that uh, uh, I found increasingly interesting and ended up uh, writing a sort of wide-ranging book about the topic. Well, like I said, I am, I am glad that we finally, you know, connected. I almost said physically connected, but we, we aren't sitting in the same place. But no, we are socially distanced. Yeah. We, um, just to get to know each other, because again, we could spend the entire podcast today talking about brain fluence because, um, I became so passionate about understanding neuromarketing and neuroscience because as someone who loves technology and marketing, when I realized that there's these just ways to push the the buy button inside the brain and, and have that kind of influence, I couldn't get enough of the information and really wanted to just, you know, improve my communication, improve my marketing by doing that. And and we talked about the guys at SalesBrain and their book on neuromarketing and and your book and their book were you know, two books that I really felt I got tremendous education and insight. What I liked about your book, uh, Brainfluence, was it was very practical. You gave, you know, as you said, like examples, very specific examples of the application uh, of this. And that's what I want to get out of today when we talk about your newer book, uh, Friction, and just give a little context for why I was so excited to have you on the program, even though we could talk about neuromarketing forever. 
And that is this, two reasons. One is, as a CEO last year, one of the number, it was the number two initiative for our company was to take a look at friction in our own business and get rid of it. And this is before I discovered your book and before you and I met, but I, like you, felt that if you're not doing this as a business leader, doesn't matter how big your company is or even if you're leading a department or whatever your role is, over time, you just add more and more processes. And, you know, Roger, I go insane. Like if I'm at a restaurant and I sit down and want to order, let's say, a burger, and I'll say, uh, I'd like your, um, you know, cheddar burger, and can I get avocado on that? And they're like, uh, sorry, no, we, uh, we can't put avocado on that. I'm like, we saw avocado <laughs> toast. So you have avocado in the kitchen. Why, why can't I get some sliced avocado? Yeah, we just don't do it. Like, you know, you've been to those places and they're almost unapologetic about it. Like you will eat the way that we built the menu together. And I've, I've had that and I, I just scratch my head. Like, I don't know why people would do that. On the other side of the spectrum, you talked about Amazon, which we could talk about. I've been to hotels and gone through online registration processes, check-in processes, um, logging in and out of the room. Uh, and and had like an almost frictionless experience and, and been delighted and so much so that I want to tell people about it. In fact, if you want a hotel like that, when we get all, all get back out, the Petrogal Resort in um, Cabo, Mexico, is a place that you anyone should go to and have the most amazing hotel experience uh, ever. They're phenomenal from a customer service perspective and all the way through from, from the start of the registration uh, to arriving home. But why are you and I talking about it? Because I'm not in the hotel business and, and we're not out dining. Um, one was, like I said, as a CEO, I wanted to make sure that we took all friction out of our process. Employee onboarding, client engagement, SOWs, any place that we over-architected a process and added friction, we want to get rid of it. And candidly, Roger, I would say we were mediocre at identifying those things. So one of the things I want to get out today is helping folks listening in, where they can spot friction in their teams or their marketing and identify it and then put a plan to get rid of it. Because I only think we did a mediocre job there in terms of identifying those friction points and really me casting into the organization saying, look for it and then here's what to do with it. But, but as importantly, we just, on the last episode, last podcast episode, we introduced, Carlos and I, our D3 methodology which um, you haven't seen this, Roger, but the D3 methodology is a holistic model for maximizing revenue. And the model is based on something in the physical world, which is a planetary gear system. And maybe with your engineering background, you know exactly what that is. Well, I didn't know much about it, but I've certainly learned way more than I ever thought I would about planetary gear systems. And the reason that it serves such a good metaphor is as an engine of driving revenue, in the physical world, that engine needs a lot of lubrication to function well, which said another way, you have to remove friction or it seizes up. And that's why I was excited to bring you onto the program today, because as a guy who's written a whole book on getting friction out of your business and improving your customer experience, that is a point that I underscore with all of our clients in that if, if sales is ordering process, the SOW process is not an e-sign process these days, why why not? Like very antiquated to send a PDF, have it printed, go to a fax machine, sign it and send it. So thank you for joining me. Let's talk about the book and let's really, you know, give you my experience, like how do people identify where friction is in their marketing and their customer experience and, and do something about it. So thank you for joining again. Well, thank you, David. And, you know, another mechanical, I was actually a chemi, so I don't know that much about um, those mechanical uh, devices. But uh, another analogy that I've heard is uh, a flywheel. And uh, when you get your uh, marketing going and your customer experience going, uh, it sort of becomes a flywheel that keeps on turning. Uh, people have a good experience, they come back, uh, they have another good experience and so on. Uh, but of course, uh, flywheels can be slowed down by friction. Mm -hmm. And so you want to take that out. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the uh, I think we're seeing some of these um, breakthroughs. You talked about uh, the great hotel experience. Uh, you know, I think that another example is uh, taxis. Who saw taxis as a really high friction process until Uber came along? Right. You know, I mean, we just accepted that taxis were taxis and they had certain limitations in their processes. Like, you know, you had to 
wave your arms out in the street to get one or perhaps place a phone call and hope that they showed up on time. And, you know, there, there was not clearly a better way. Uh, but then suddenly, uh, after Uber and Lyft came along, we could immediately see, whoa, hey, you know, we can see, well, we know when that driver's going to be here because we've got uh, his or her position right on the map. Uh, we know how close we are to our destination and the drivers are taking us out of our way. We don't have to uh, pull money or credit card out at the end. We can just say goodbye and leave. Uh, and uh, we look back at that taxi process and say, wow, that was really full of friction. But uh, the problem is uh, we often just don't see it. Uh, and I think the other problem is sometimes we do see it, uh, but we just say, well, it's not that much and it's too expensive, too time consuming, too something to fix it. I mean, I'm sure that you've gone to websites, Dave, and had uh, odd experiences where uh, you can't figure out what to do or you get logged out unexpectedly or other things. Uh, and, uh, you know, those things could all be fixed. And in some cases, uh, you know, I, I was... Um, Initially, uh, I've been a customer of United Airlines for years, and I tend to pick on them quite a bit uh, because they're the only airline I fly pretty much or book my reservations through. Uh, and uh, the, uh, you know, by and large, the experience is good, especially as an elite flyer. But uh, their website drives me up the wall. I mean, there it has so many weird user experience things. The the search function is awful, and various other issues. And I must, I, for a while, I thought gee, they really need to hire a good user experience person. Right. And over time, I came to realize they undoubtedly have many people uh, there who understand user experience, but they don't have the clout to make the changes that are necessary. Either their compliance and legal people are overruling them. Yeah, we have to log people out after 15 minutes, uh, no matter what, uh, because that's best practice, even though it drives customers up the wall. Uh, you know, or... It's just, well, yeah, we could fix that. We could make that search function better, but we've got you know, 10 million lines of COBOL code that we'd have to work with, and we're really afraid to touch that because it'll probably break. Now, I don't, I don't know what the real situation is there. I do know their mobile app is pretty darn good. Uh, so either they've got a totally different team on that or probably. somehow <laughs> they were able to bypass some of these legacy issues uh, and actually make it very functional. And I think uh, seeing friction uh, really comes from... Uh, the process of thinking about it. And in the speeches and workshops that I do, uh, I tell people that I'm going to give them a set of friction goggles. In fact, the book itself starts out with a little parable or a, a fable about uh, friction goggles. And uh, by that, what I mean is uh, at the end of the book or at the end of the keynote or at the end of the workshop, uh, people will have a metaphorical set of friction goggles that they will be seeing more friction. Uh, and uh, what I mean by that is uh, I have turned on their brain's reticular activating system, which is a filter in your brain that screens out everything that isn't important right now. So you can cross Times Square be, um, because your RAS screens out everything except oncoming cars, the crosswalk indicator, and the people right around you. Uh, so you're, you're not distracted and you can accomplish your task. And it normally serves a, a valuable purpose. But uh, as in the case of taxis before Uber, you know, this was all just normal stuff. It was unexceptional, unimportant, and you really didn't think about it. And what you have to train your brain to do is look for those little elements of friction that could be different uh, if some changes were made. And the problem is we don't normally look for them or see them. And they're everywhere. And I'm glad you brought that up. But you have to learn how to look for them. The reason that friction became an initiative last year is that you touched on the flywheel. And, and I'm not sure if you're referring to like Brian Halligan and the inbound conference where, where Brian introduced the flywheel concept in terms of like getting sales marketing and, and customer service working together. Mm -hmm. And I loved what he shared with that. And I went on the road myself and did a lot of keynotes last year and talked about the frictionless buying experience and the, and the importance of getting rid of friction in your environment, especially with your customers. And I talked about, uh, you know, similar to Brian had that, you know, someone woke up this morning and rolled out of bed in a mattress that they bought online. And it wasn't just a mattress that they bought online, but the delivery experience was the company coming in and bringing the new mattress and removing the old mattress. And if anybody's ever carried a mattress downstairs, they're freaking heavy and <laughs> they're not something you can put in a trash can. So that's value. 1-800-GOT-JUNK, um, right? They're commercials these days. 
uh, very great message. It's just point to it and it's gone. Um, so crisp. And I think it's a CEO who does the, the commercials. So it's very authentic. Uh, and you know, they've tied their, their visuals in the commercial to their marketing message, which directly aligns to the pain points of people who have junk. Like I want to get rid of it and I don't want to deal with it because it's junk. So just get rid of it for me. And all you got to do is point. So when we think about marketers, right. And, and what we are doing, well, we're creating friction in way too many places. Like when we generate leads, Right? We put up landing pages and we have forms and we have to decide what fields to put on forms and how big to make it and what to call the label. Is it a business email or a regular email? And you know, do we do we strict them to putting certain types of emails and do we create pick list values? And we come up with the pick list values. So those are right values that works with their brain to go, yes, I am of this role or this industry. And we put friction in this engagement process. And it absolutely, we know this from math and, and from campaign uh, A-B tests and C-D tests and all that, that the longer the form, the more complex the form, the less intuitive the form. Like you said, UI, you just chase people away. In your book, you, you, you focus on that in friction and you focus on helping people identify it. So what do you do if you're, if you're a marketer and you're, you're every day building campaigns and trying to engage with people, but yet you have these processes that have been put in place that, that create friction? How do you get rid of it? Yeah, you know, it's funny that you use the form example because they are really one of the um, uh, common sources of friction. Just today, this morning, uh, I was checking on a book order in Australia. A a friend of mine is uh, sheltering in Australia, and I wanted to send him a book. So I found an Australian bookseller and uh, placed an order. Today I've been checking on it, and it hasn't. Uh, it still lists as in process. Uh, today it was already two days past the expected delivery date, and it was still see, saying in process. So there's friction point number one. Okay, there's no update as to what the status is. Uh, it's still saying, oh yeah, this this uh, should be there two days ago. Uh, so I mean that was that was point one. So I said, okay, I'm gonna fill out a, a form for the uh, uh, just ask them what's uh, you know what's going on. Can they give me an update? And uh, it kept rejecting my. Uh, submission because there was a phone number field uh, and it told me that it wanted um, uh, needs an integer value. Now, uh, you know, <laughs> after, after uh, four years of engineering school, I know what yeah. an integer is, but, you know, uh, talk about a bad way to communicate what you want to, you know, customers and prospective customers. Uh, you know, why don't you show them the format in a little picture or something? Right. You know, do anything, but don't tell them it needs to be an integer value because, uh, you know, uh, it, I, I finally did after about four tries uh, determine exactly what they wanted uh, and I submitted the form. But, you know, I mean, that was absolutely pointless friction. There was no need for that. Yeah. And, um, and while, while we're on the topic of uh, forms, too, their, uh, friction isn't always a bad thing. Uh, sometimes you can use that to qualify leads. Because, I mean, lead generation is important for many businesses, especially in the B2B world. Uh, Lead gen is a very significant activity. And depending on how you're processing those leads, how you're following up on them, uh, it's a real balancing act. If you have a relatively inexpensive follow-up process, then you want to make your lead gen form as simple as possible. Name and an email, perhaps, would be sufficient on the other hand, if you've got uh, human salespeople trying to contact these leads and follow up on them, uh, it may be worth adding a little bit of friction to ensure that the leads are a little bit more qualified because you can do two things. First of all, you can get a little more information about the lead by adding a form, a field or two or three. Uh, so that helps the salespeople. But also, you will screen out those people who are uninterested. Now, the danger is you'll screen out some good prospects who are just lazy or really busy. But, uh, you know, there is a trade-off there. Yeah, for sure. Balancing act. You know, I, I've done software develop. I was, a, I was a young programmer as a kid, and I studied computer science. So I got a lot of experience in UI design firsthand by building products and seeing how people could figure out to use them or not. One of the products that I developed in 1999 with some guys was the first VoIP product for the internet. And, uh, uh, the, the Alexander Graham Bell. Most people don't know that about me, but I was an avid video gamer and I thought it'd be really cool if we could talk to each other over the computer while we're playing a video game. And fast forward, and everybody does that in terms of multiplayers. But at that time, 
you think about it, we had to create a piece of software. People didn't have microphones. People didn't, for the most part, have headsets on their computers. Um, computers weren't fast. And, you didn't and work modem- in customer service. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, they, they did, certainly. Um, and it was, uh, we had to change people's behavior. And that talk about friction, right? If you're going to change someone's behavior to adopt your product, but lo and behold, they did. But the UI had to be so seamless in terms of getting people to connect. And so many people these days, you know, 100 million new Zoom users in just the past month, right? If Zoom was difficult to use, there wouldn't be that kind of adoption uh, for, for people to pick up. So I think one of the things important for marketing to look at is the entire continuum of friction, your forms. What about when you generate a lead? What does that lead look like in your CRM? How hard is it for your sales rep to find the lead, to see the lead score? Uh, when you're creating campaigns and you're introducing calls to actions, uh, are they obvious? And, and by the way, I would love to get your perspective. Like sometimes you have emails that will have three or four different links and calls to action. Is that effective or is it not? Because in some ways it's causing the brain to go, oh my God, I got five different places I can click. Where's the place that I should, or is it more effective? So it's it's fascinating. One company, which you and I both know, unfortunately, there there are lots of parts of the business are closed these days. Is Disney? Disney has monetized friction, right? With the Fast Pass, they knew people didn't want to wait in lines, and they created an offering that allowed people to pay a premium to skip the line or or get in a shorter line. And what a genius offering uh, that was. And then there's companies like Blockbuster who taxed their clients and charged fees, added friction to not the buying process, but the, but the return process and taxed people there. And, and that put themselves out of business when Reed Hastings went to return Apollo 13 and said, no, thanks. I'm never coming back. And, and he made Netflix. Um, when you, uh, when you look at friction and you, um, conduct your workshops and keynotes, what are you seeing marketers struggle with and, and need to tackle? How, how aware are they of all the friction that exists in the buying process and the engagement process that, he, that they need to get rid of? Well, I think that often people are aware of it, particularly the marketing people who are on the front line, uh, because they can see when customers struggle. Usually they can, not always. And if, if uh, uh, they are not looking at customers trying to use their uh, site, their app, their products, you know, if they're not testing these things, uh, then they really need to do that. And also look at the data. You know, uh, one really common mistake that I see is uh, if you ask people, uh, how many steps are there in your checkout process for, say, an e-commerce company, uh, uh, they'll think for a minute and say, well, three, because they think, okay, you do this page and then you click next and do that page and click next and then that's the last one, Uh, except uh, they really need to be counting everything in the middle. You know, how many fields are there on each page? How many keystrokes? Uh, do you have autofill enabled properly or is that screwed up? You know, one of the most common mistakes I see is bad autofill. Uh, not today. People filling out forms using web browsers can uh, pretty much complete even a lengthy form in a few keystrokes. Uh, Google introduced autofill for Chrome about, I don't know, I think six years ago now, maybe longer. Uh, and uh, if it's coded correctly, uh, the form on your site will remember data that the customers have used for similar forms on other sites and fill it in automatically. Uh, so it takes a ton of effort out of it, uh, and you're much more likely to get a form that's completed both fully and accurately. Uh, it seems simple, but I would say more than half the forms I encounter, even today in 2020, don't do it right. Uh, in fact, just um, uh, last year, a few months ago, I was registering for a tech conference, uh, pretty, pretty major tech company, smart people. Uh, and the registration form uh, populated every field, which was a long, it was a long form. It was about 12 fields, which for me is a pretty long form. Uh, you know, they wanted uh, a street address and phone number and title and you know, all this uh, stuff, which is fine. And I wanted to go to the conference. So I filled this out, but it populated every single one with the word Roger Mm. because the coder had apparently lazily uh, taken the first field from another form and just replicated that Mm -hmm. and changed the visible part of the form, but did not fix the uh, autofill. So what I had to do was manually type in my phone number, type in my email address, every single character, uh, you know, type in everything. 
And uh, this was a crazy amount of effort compared to what sh should have been there. I did want to go to the conference, so I did fill it out. Uh, but if that had been, uh, say, a lead gen form or something a little bit uh, where I was a little bit less motivated, uh, undoubtedly, I just would have bailed out of it and said, forget this. Uh, these people don't know what they're doing. Yeah, I, I, I would recommend that people take the, uh, the take inventory of, of all of their different marketing touch points and see where they can reduce friction. I know that you, you prescribe this. In fact, you suggest about building a whole frictionless corporate culture. So it's not just in marketing, but across your own, your own organization, really optimizing the customer experience. Think of webinars, right? People register for webinars. They've got software to install and download, have you know, the marketing team or whoever's responsible for these events gone through that process. If you're, if you're doing live events again and you're um, releasing a, a show app, have you gone through the app experience and see how intuitive the interface is and what kind of engagement that you expect. Uh, we just we do twice a year a net promoter score uh, survey to our clients and it just started this week. Um, so far, the results have been phenomenal. So anybody who's a customer listening, please take it and we'd love to get your feedback. Uh, but to your point, Roger, there's no form to fill out. Like the email goes to them because they're a, a designated contact in our CRM. And marketing has it set up so that they get that email. They click through. There's no anything to fill out other than just, just give the, the net promoter score and any other you know, comment that they want to provide. It would be crazy to have to ask them to fill out a form and put in their name and information when you're asking your own customer who you should know. Like there's no, It's not even a pre-populated form. There's no form using you know, the power of marketing automation to, to do that. Uh, we have a managed services team. We do campaign execution services for our clients. And we're constantly looking at our ticketing system. So you have a ticketing system where our clients can go and request us to build a campaign and give it all the COVID-19 communication that's going out. You know, We are sending more emails than we ever have for our clients. And we need to make sure that that process- of Yeah, them I think just, I'm getting about half of them, David. Yeah, we, and enough already, right? I mean, yes, we know it's an unprecedented time and you want to help, but unless you really can help- don't don't send me any more email. It's it's enough already. Is is choice ever uh, get you into trouble from a friction perspective? I know there's there's a lot that ties back to neuromarketing marketing around you know too many sizes of this or too many flavors of that. What do you think in terms of friction? Short short answer uh, yes. Uh, there is uh, certainly a choice friction factor, and it goes back to uh, something Barry Schwartz called the paradox of choice that. Uh, plenty of research shows that when you give people more choices, uh, they have more difficulty making a decision and are more likely to do nothing. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that more choice is always bad, uh, particularly where people have specific needs and wants. Uh, you know, having a lot of choice can make sense. But, you know, I think one company that deals with choice in a very smart way is Amazon. They have infinite choice. You know, they, they have a bigger product selection uh, uh, by orders of magnitude than anybody on the planet. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but what they do is uh, they provide cues to help you identify which is going to be the right choice for you. Uh, first of all, their search function is very powerful. So if, if you put in a general search term, they will start suggesting variations of that uh, keyword that you're searching for that might allow you to narrow it down at that phase. Then uh, when they show you other products, you will see things that are flagged as Amazon's choice, bestseller. Uh, they will let you sort from lower to price to high. Uh, they'll use screens on the left sides or filters so that you can uh, pick either price ranges or vendors or colors or materials, you know, whatever is appropriate for that product. Uh, a couple of interesting things uh, that they do there that I think are worth noting, uh, they have a prime selection op option whenever they have those filters displayed so that you can choose only those products that are in their prime program that you know you're going to get quick delivery on, with, with, at least in normal circumstances, not pandemic times. Uh, and then they also have something uh, that I think is fascinating, and this is something I also talk about quite a bit, uh, is uh, there's often a box for frustration-free packaging. You can filter out any product that does not have what they call frustration-free packaging. These are these little cardboard boxes 
you can open with your bare hands with minimal risk of injury to yourself. Uh, good for the environment com- compared to those horrible plastic clamshell things that you've got to use. Uh, like you know, straight uh, jacket. Yeah, that yeah, thing yeah. Is- I mean, you've, you've got to tear into them. You can't open them with your uh, fingers. You've got to use some kind of sharp instrument. Uh, they're dangerous. If you don't cut yourself uh, with the scissors, you'll cut yourself with a sharp plastic. You know, there, there's so many bad things about that. But uh, it took uh, Amazon to say, well, hey, okay, uh, we're going to offer a better alternative. And now uh, it's been so effective for them that they even offer customers the ability to screen for that. So, and you know, anything that you see on Amazon.com has been tested a million ways to Sunday. Uh, you know, it's not there by accident. It's not there because uh, Jeff thought it was going to be a good idea. It's there because it's gone through rigorous uh, A, B, or multivariate testing, and it increased sales. So, uh, you know, I think we can all learn a lot from Amazon just by looking at what they're doing. Yeah. Well, you you note in the book, uh, I believe the number you gave was like $4.6 trillion of merchandise is left in abandoned e-commerce shopping carts. And I've, I've certainly, we've certainly helped many clients. I don't know if you guys uh, know the companies Autodesk and Avid Systems, these companies that offer not only, you know, free trials, but they have like, coming back to choice, they have, you know, basic versions and premium versions. And they found that they were having huge abandoned cart rates and needed to figure out, is this due to our user interface of the shopping experience? And a lot of what they found was that it was... I don't know what the psychology is, but it's not buyer's remorse. It's right up to that point, like, do I really need it? And because there was enough friction in the process and too many choices and too many pricing tiers, people were like, nah, I'm not sure what to do. And so we ran uh, remarket campaigns that people who abandoned, we'd send follow-up emails and we're using different tests of order streamlining and different price discounts and that type of stuff and found that it had way more to do with the user experience of of having too many choices than it actually was the price point of the abandoned cart and i'm not sure if you have more research on that but it's that's a huge you know almost five trillion dollars of attempted purchasing that gets uh, abandoned as as you noted Um, yeah it's 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 crazy and you know when people look at the reasons for that uh, many of those things are frictional in nature it's it's the complex checkout process, confusing process. Uh, you're required to set up an account instead of being able to just check out as a guest. You know, all these little things uh, add up, and that's the genius of Amazon's one-click ordering. Uh, you know, it's you're not adding it to your cart. Uh, you're clicking that button, and it's going straight into their fulfillment system. You know, uh, there's no abandoned cart problem when you cl- use that button, right? Uh, because there is no cart, uh, and you know that's the genius of it. You know. Way back in 1997, Jeff Bezos was talking about frictionless shopping. Uh, so, you know, this is not a new concept for them. They, they were at the vanguard of that. And most people are trying to figure out if people are still going to be using e-commerce. Uh, and they, uh, uh, the year after that, patented one-click ordering. And yeah. a lot of people, me included at the time, thought, oh, you can't patent something that simple. It's pretty obvious. Well, they could patent it. Barnes & Noble, who at that time was their main competitor because they started off in books, implemented one-click ordering, and the two companies got in a big legal fight. Uh, Amazon spent millions of dollars to fight and defend the patent, and they won. And all they succeeded by spending those millions of dollars, David, was just uh, adding one tiny little click to their competition. Now, you know, if you go to a developer in your company and say, you know, uh, gee, there's, we could eliminate one click here. Uh, they're likely to say, ah, it's only one click, you know, don't worry about it. You know, it's not much effort, uh, you know, it's, don't even think about it. Uh, but it was worth spending all that effort and money to defend that one click advantage. And then at the same time, uh, there was another smart guy who saw one click ordering, and that was Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was about to launch his music store, and they didn't try and fight the patent. They didn't try and create a technical workaround. What, what did they do? They spent $1 million so that they could put one-click ordering in their music store. They paid Amazon. And we know that worked out pretty well, too. Yeah, sure did. You know, so when, when somebody tells you, David, that oh, one-click uh, or two keystrokes, that's nothing, uh, just you know, tell them that little story and ask them if they're smarter than Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos. Well, the, the reason, again, I wanted to make sure that, that you and I talk about this topic is, and this is maybe the, the Easter egg, the hidden gem, uh, and I'm going to just put a big spotlight on it for everybody in this episode of the podcast. I want to make sure everybody realizes like, what just happened in 2020, because I think it's worth underscoring and, and highlighting. Uh, 
marketing is taking center stage. I've wanted my whole career to get to this point where marketing is the revenue engine for driving growth. And with everything that just happened, the, the silver lining, if there is, in this global pandemic, is that physical buying halted almost overnight. And if you needed to conduct business, it is being done digitally from everything from events to orders. This is now the new normal. It's happened overnight. Talk about digital transformation. It's like a time machine came down to earth and fast forwarded, took us in time forward and is putting marketing in this driving seat. So the reason I want to have Roger on the, on the podcast is your role in marketing and even your role in sales, you have to get friction out. As, as Roger says in his book, like you have to have a war on friction if you want to win. You not only have to have a better customer experience and better engagement experience, but you just have to rip friction out of everything if you want to beat your competition because digital natives like Amazon are going to crush you if you don't do this. That, that's my firm belief, Roger. And I think that's, you know, it's why I've been so passionate about friction, not only in our own company, but looking at friction. And we got to get rid of it, as, as, you, as you say. How, how do people receive your workshops, like in terms of like the receptiveness? I, um, I'm passionate, as you can hear, about the topic. I, I don't know if people are talking about this enough, which it's great that folks like you and I are out there beating the drum on this, but I, I don't hear about it a lot, and I'm surprised. Yeah, well, I guess maybe I hear about it a little bit more simply because uh, it's my topic. But, yeah. uh, you know, you're right. Many uh, people don't focus on it. Uh, they focus on, uh, you know, I mean, clearly every marketing person, every operations person uh, has a lot on their plate. They've got a lot to focus on. They've got, uh, you know, new products and product specs and, you know. Uh, sometimes uh, the details that create friction aren't, don't seem that important, but uh, they are. And what I see is uh, after uh, a talk or a workshop, like if I'm at a lunch break, uh, I'll see people from uh, who were there in the morning and they'll be in the lunch line or they'll trying to do something and suddenly yell friction, friction when, they, when something uh, isn't <laughs> going the way they expect it. So uh, in those cases, I feel like I've activated their RAS successfully. And, you know, there, there's a good example of RAS activation that probably you've experienced, David, if you've ever bought a new car or different car and uh, suddenly within a week, you start seeing that car on the road everywhere. We're mm -hmm. saying, man, those weren't there before. Where where they all come from? Uh, they were always there. It's just that now your RAS has been trained to let them through because they might be important. They look like your car. And when you're in a parking lot trying to find your car, it knows is learn what to look for. And so it's letting those cars through and they weren't there before. And, you know, hopefully uh, even today in our little conversation, uh, we will be turning on some RASs to look for friction uh, that really, um, you know, where people weren't seeing it before. And, you know, one, one other suggestion I have, you know, you've brought up the importance of internal friction of uh, not just getting the friction out of your customer experience, but out of your employee experience too. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important. Uh, you know, uh, uh, today we're seeing a little bit of fraying at the edges for Amazon because Amazon has been held up as like the genius company of all time and rightly so. But uh, right now, uh, they're experiencing a little bit of issue with uh, on the employment side. Uh, they've got employees who've done some wildcat walkouts uh, because of lack of protection. Uh, they've got some efforts uh, to bring unions in and such. Uh, and, you know, clearly their employees don't have the same uh, love and trust in the company that their customers do because their customers love Amazon. Uh, they're like the most trusted brand on the planet. Uh, so they've got no problems on the customer side, but uh, employee side, they do above average looking at uh, indeed.com surveys. Uh, Amazon doesn't do that badly, but they are not a leader in employee experience. Uh, they are uh, they're they're better than average, but uh, they're not fantastic. And I think that's starting to show through a little bit now. So one of the important things uh, that any manager can do uh, is ask their people, how can I make your job easier? Now, this is a really simple question, uh, but it's also very powerful because, first of all, uh, many employees, not certainly not in all companies, there are many good companies uh, that uh, don't necessarily just try and drive their employees harder and harder, but uh, by and large, employees perceive that uh, their manager wants them to simply do more stuff in the same amount of time. They want to get more work out of them. Mm -hmm. uh, they want them to work harder. 
you know, don't, uh, don't slack off, you know, keep putting the effort in. And so when a manager says, well, how can I make your job easier? Uh, that is sometimes startling, maybe not always, but sometimes a little bit of a surprise. Uh, and also it puts both people on the same side of the table that we're trying to figure out how to make this job easier. Mm -hmm. And what it can do is identify some of those bad processes, those rules that really don't need to be followed. And uh, some interesting research shows that uh, you know, when, when companies have gone in to analyze uh, internal processes and rules and to see what, what should be changed, uh, they've found that people have been following rules for years that weren't actually rules. Uh, you know, they were just the way things were done. And the person that trained them did it that way. And over time, these things sort of uh, calcified into rules. Uh, so you know, even if it was an inefficient process, well, that's the way we have to do it. And, you know, it turns out, uh, well, no, you don't have to do it that way. But, uh, you know, when you ask that very simple question, how can I make your job easier? Uh, you may find some of those bad processes, uh, some of those stupid things that are wasting people's times, uh, meetings that they attend that they don't really need to attend, but they're forced to for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, you know, things that can be eliminated uh, without harm to the company that will make that person's job easier. And so it's it's a great thing. And uh, if, if you've got time for one story, it's from General Electric. And this yeah. is not a new story. It goes it goes back to Jack Welch days. So before the turn of the last century. And uh, they went through a number of processes. He went through a delayering process to get rid of layers of management and that kind of friction. And then he did sort of a horizontal uh a wall blow up where we wanted people, anybody to be able to talk to anybody in the organization as opposed to going through the hierarchy and channels. Uh, and so at one meeting where they had both the managers and hourly union employees, um, uh, somebody asked that question, one of the managers, and uh, one employee spoke up and he said, well, okay, uh, uh, I work on my machine all day handling sharp metal. And uh, I go through a pair of work gloves probably about once a week. Uh, to get a new pair of work gloves, uh, I have to shut my machine down, uh, go to another building, go to the tool crib, fill out a requisition form, then find a supervisor to approve that requisition form, go back to the tool crib, uh, get the gloves, then finally go back to my workstation, resume work. And uh, that could take an hour or two, depending on how easy it is to find the supervisor, whether there's a line at the tool crib. Uh, and the only reason that rule was in place was because some previous manager had thought, well, if we give these people work gloves uh, near their workstation, they'll steal them. So oh, we'll have this process that will ensure that nobody steals a $2 pair of work gloves. Uh, and so the quick solution was, well, put a box of damn work gloves by the guy's station. You know, simple problem uh, that had multiple effects. First of all, the, the uh, amount of work gloves stolen uh, did not increase uh, dramatically if, if there were any stolen at all. Uh, secondly, uh, it saved an hour or two a week of expensive time. Uh, and then thirdly, it actually showed the uh, this uh, hourly uh, machine worker guy that management cared about him and was willing to act on something that he suggested. So, I mean, it was a win-win all around. Uh, and, you know, they may not all be that easy or that obvious, but uh, often just by showing you trust people, uh, you will... Uh, both make their job easier and also trust is reciprocated, David. If I show that I trust you, uh, you are more likely to trust me. That's uh, based on research. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, one another area that I see this happen in is uh, expense reporting. When mm -hmm. I've, I've been an entrepreneur in the uh, uh, since uh, the 80s, but I did have a stint where uh, a company that uh, I had built was purchased uh, by a big company, and I became an employee of that company for a period of time. And even though I was a uh, senior VP level person, uh, when I did an expense report for travel, I had to attach every single $2 receipt if I wanted to get reimbursed for it. If I bought a $2 coffee in the airport, if you can still find one of those, uh, I needed a piece of paper to prove that I did that. Uh, so when I submitted one of these things, there'd be a wad of little papers mm -hmm. uh, stapled to it. 
Uh, and somebody would have to go through this wad of papers and make sure that they were all matching up. Uh, they finally streamlined the process so that uh, then I had to take these little papers and scan them, uh, label the scan with the appropriate <laughs> line item, and assign an account number to them, which made the processing in the accounting department a lot easier, but it increased my time even more. And later on, I had a chance to talk to the CFO who was uh, after we had both left the company and said, well, why did you have this crazy procedure? You know, it was such a waste of time. He said, well, uh, we did not trust uh, our people to not try to game the system or to abuse the system. Uh, and, you know, so when you have that lack of trust, you put in procedures and processes uh, that don't make sense. Like somebody might steal those work gloves, so we're going to put a process in to prevent that. Uh, you know, if they just showed that they trusted people, probably 99 times out of 100, that trust would not be abused and everybody would be a whole lot happier and more productive. And save the company a bunch of money because all that, all that, all that process adds up to cost in just a different, a different way. Yeah, fascinating. Well, Roger, thank you for joining me. I, I encourage everybody uh, to read both of your books and, and certainly uh, tune into your podcast. Um, these topics, neuromarketing and friction, there, there aren't two areas that I've had a greater impact uh, on my success and our company's success. And I do feel that where everything is headed, the focus around customer experience these days, uh, just how competitive the market is, how noisy the market is, and how overnight we've been thrust into full uh, digital transformation. Um, it is important for you to just, your words, Roger, have a war on friction, get it out, look at it, see where it is in your organization, in your marketing processes, in your engagement with your clients and get rid of it and, and learn about neuromarketing because it'll make you a better communicator, better marketer. Thank you for joining me. I'm going to follow up with you, Roger, because I could talk all day with you, but unfortunately I got to jump to another meeting and I'm sure everybody listening has, uh, another podcast to listen to. And, um, it's just a fascinating topic. So let's you and I try to find some ways to continue this conversation, maybe on LinkedIn and some other ways. But thank you so much for uh, connecting uh, with me and for, for sharing your wisdom uh, with so many of us. It's fantastic. Well, thank you, David. It's been a fun conversation. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this episode of Demand Gen Radio. I hope everybody is sheltering in place safely. I do see the light at the end of the tunnel. I think you guys do too. And I look forward to uh, getting face-to-face again with so many of you. But until then, thank you for joining me on each and every episode. We'll catch you on the next one. Take care. You've been listening to Demand Gen Radio, bringing you the top industry experts, thought leaders, authors, marketing technology firms, and senior marketing leaders from around the world to teach you the methods and technologies for high-performance marketing. 